Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast. We are back in your life for another episode. Truly thank you to everyone that comes here to listen. I can't tell you how much we truly appreciate it. We're going to get into that episode here quickly. Just a few things I want to go over. First, if you're liking this podcast, if you're enjoying it, take 30 seconds to a minute of your time. Go to our page on Apple Podcast. Give us a rating and write us a review. All that does is it helps the show itself. It helps more people find us. Uh, another thing that y'all been doing that has been incredible is you've either followed us on Spotify and you share um, the spot the Spotify link of our episodes to your Instagram stories, or you screenshot Apple Podcast or Google Podcast when you're listening to it, share that to your stories, and you tag the Primos page or tag Jordan or myself. That is awesome. Keep doing that. Really appreciate when y'all do that. Um, just helps grow the show, and y'all been doing incredible. I can't tell you how much I appreciate y'all. Um, also. The numbers of our of our downloads and everything here lately have been very, very telling that y'all are getting very hyped for the upcoming hunting seasons. So this is what I'm asking from, from y'all. We made this show, or I should say one of the main reasons we started doing this show is we, we always want to be putting out there what y'all want to hear. If we're not putting out there stuff that y'all don't want to hear, then we don't have a show. Um, so... Y'all, y'all have done great with sending in embarrassment stories. Those have been really enjoyable. So what I want y'all to do now is send in to the Primo's, pod, Primo's Hunting Podcast at gmail.com or the Primo's Instagram page or my Instagram page or Jordan's Instagram page. Shoot us a message. Tell us, hey, I want to hear a podcast on this subject or on uh, I want y'all to maybe interview this person. We look at those. We really take those into account. So don't hold back. If you've got a specific uh, subject, topic, person you think would be good on the show send it in we, we look at those we take those into account so uh do that if you would um also primo's youtube channel i know what y'all are thinking we've, we've been bringing that up here recently but folks are still asking about it so the primo's youtube channel right now we are uploading new shows every single week we're uploading uh tv shows and we're also uploading something called primo's classics primo's classics is probably I would call that the most exciting thing we're uploading right now because that's been the thing that's been asked for for the longest time, and we're just now doing it. This is stuff from the VHS days, from the older DVD D days, and we're taking those hunts and we're uploading on YouTube, and folks are really seeming to like them. So check out the Primo's YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and you type in Primo's Hunting, we should be the first channel to pop up. Give those a look. Also, new shows are airing on Outdoor Channel right now. You don't want to miss those. Also, the Game of Racks giveaway. Everyone's a fan of free stuff. I know that. We're doing a contest called the Game of Racks. has to do with elk season. So head on over to the Primo's Facebook page or Instagram page. Learn how to enter that competition. Also, our friends over at Amco Manufacturing. Um, we've been using Amco Disc for several years now. That's how we build our food plots. They do an incredible job, make an incredible product. They're doing an awesome giveaway. Um, you can find out how to win that over at the Amco Facebook page or Instagram page. And I think that's all we have to cover before we get into the show. So a little bit of uh, background before we get into the conversation. Today we have on the show a man by the name of Ramsey Russell. Ramsey operates a business known as Get Ducks. Ramsey is, this is honestly, this is probably one of the most interesting conversations I've had on this podcast. When I say, if I say this guy's been duck hunting everywhere, um, that would be too vague of a statement. This guy has been duck hunting all over the globe. I mean, he's telling stories in this conversation about hunting ducks in the Netherlands, in Russia, in New Zealand. I mean, this guy has been all over 
chasing different waterfowl and he's all about the experience he's all about the hunt itself it was such an interesting interesting conversation so if you're a hardcore waterfowler if you go duck hunting two times a year if you've been duck hunting one time in your life if you've never been duck hunting i promise you you will still find this conversation interesting because it's something about if, if you're a hunter if you're a conservationist you can find a kindred spirit listening to someone like Ramsey talk about this and you can just tell how much he loves it and how enthusiastic he is about it so check it out I really think you'll enjoy it also once again thank you truly for coming here to listen it means the world to us and enjoy the show man I'm absolutely honored to be here I'm you know I've passed by this primos building a million times and never been in here y'all been here (laughs) half my life a long time so let's open the podcast this way you just got back from a pretty incredible trip oh i did i did yeah you know, i went i went we we've been going to south africa for uh gosh a long time almost a decade and you know it, it's uh cream rises to the top you you, you if, if you're ever happy with your position it, it's just gonna plateau you got to keep climbing that's the whole thing and so we had a great hunt down in south africa but i knew there was better and it took several years preceding pandemic to put that trip together we went in 2019 it was awesome and africa's a big continent south africa is a big country and you, you can't just go to a lodge and see it all mm-hmm. you know that'd be like coming to florida mississippi and saying well i've seen mississippi <laughs> you ain't been to the delta you ain't been to the coast right. something. And, yeah. and so uh it's a real immersive running gun tour i was there uh for about three weeks and each group had two groups, one group for five days, one group for, I guess, nine days. We, we hunted three provinces, multiple stops. We hunted ducks, geese, upland birds to include driven guinea fowl, Franklin over over pointers, which is amazing. Because the, the, you don't think of Africa. When you think of Africa, what do you think of? You don't. I don't think of waterfowl, horns, yeah, kudus, and zebras, and giraffes, game. plains yeah. game, buffaloes, yeah. and... Boy, there's plenty of that to see over there, but the duck hunting is amazing. Uh, it's a it's a real um, 13 or 14 species in South Africa alone, and they're so niched. They're so um, you've got your you've got your mattered like yellow billed ducks. You've got your uh, red billed teal, and they're like green wings and mattered. They're everywhere on the landscape. Everywhere you go, you're gonna see those species. But then you've got your little pygmy geese. You got your spur wing geese. You've got your hot and tight till you've got your southern poachers you've got your knob bill ducks and they are they are they are just hyper focused on a on a little sliver of that habitat mm-hmm. and you know what i've learned i don't collect species but when i start chasing these focused species around the world it takes you down the it takes you off the beaten path into the bushes for example that pygmy goose just imagine in africa uh, which is a very dry continent. All the trees and the native trees have all got thorns, you know. Mm-hmm. But now you're hunting this little this little perching duck called a goose that's about the size of a green wing. I saw that when you posted it. That's him. And, yeah. And his habitat is all about lily pads. And just, to, I mean, finding lily pad habitat in South Africa is a needle in a haystack, <laughs> and then finding a quarter pound pounder sized bird inside lily pads yeah. is, is is really getting down into the and, and so then you go from kind of a high volume hunt decoys or pass shooting. Now you're getting in. Just think about hunting this tiny little bird, like you would a kudu. 
Mm-hmm. You're glassing, you're stalking, you're creeping, you're getting close and closing the deal. He don't come into decoys. And and it's just it's just an amazing experience. And and I tell you this, uh preceding COVID, I'd say the five years preceding COVID, I was traveling all the time, two hundred and twenty five to two hundred and fifty days a year, exploring new places, hosting hunts, uh, you know, the whole gamut. And um and man, you know, it was like a big stick in the spokes when the pandemic hit because the border shut. I mean, you remember the Tiger King crazy days? We were all sheltered in place. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in Africa a few weeks ago. We were under a flyway, just tons of Egyptian geese coming over in pairs and small family cohorts. And I knocked about five out when it just dawned on me. It's been 27 months since I did. I mean, I'm, I'm 8,000 miles from home again. And it it, it it was a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. And uh, and I just I really just sat there and, and enjoyed the moment for a minute, and then we got up and shot the heck out of geese. Yeah. You know. But anyway, it, it was a it's an incredible trip, and then I could, I could probably talk for two days just on Africa. Man, look, <laughs> you you said so many things just then that I could start pulling questions from. Um, for one, that this is one thing like I I cannot let go because I was especially I mean I've been following you for a while, but. I especially I picked up on it because I knew we had this podcast coming up. So I was trying not to miss anything. I knew you were in Africa, and so you were posting some very, very interesting stuff. Um, that spur-winged go- goose, oh, spur-winged boy. geese, I I didn't even know something like that existed. Yeah. Like, that is, that is a crazy-looking goose. He's big, he's mean, he's ugly, and he's smart. Man, that thing is uh, clever. They uh, and what's so weird is where you really see tons of them is is in thick marsh. They they like um, cattail marshes with a lot of uh, rife with just submerging aquatic vegetation, mm-hmm. but they eat grain. And uh, you know the average bird, a lot of the birds you pick up, the juveniles, the females, when you have a, a good shoot, are just about the size of a big Canada goose. But when mm-hmm. you start picking up those big ganders, they're an honest to God. 17 18 pound bruiser wow and uh they 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 really don't normally decoy very well now we and, and you gotta you know you gotta crawl outside of the world as you know it in duck hunting when you travel because not everybody duck hunts like we do folks uh hunt sea ducks or hunt divers differently than we hunt resident canada geese here in mississippi or something you know right right and but they're um the best strategy is to line up on a fence row very hidden or in blinds very hidden, place your decoys behind you, and, and you're in the flyway, and those birds are coming off a massive marsh or pan, and they're coming to this field that, that may be in two or 300 feet in it for a few days or a week, and you line out in your pass shooting. And I, I love pass shooting. I will say this. You know, I get the decoying park. I've done plenty of it. But, you know, when a bird comes over 30 40 yards he's vulnerable all mm-hmm. his vitals are there and and when you're shooting a 17 18 pound goose you need that yeah <laughs> you need a tight choke and uh they shoot lead over there i did bring some ball shot shells and did it well with it uh but you need that and one but one particular day that stands out in africa is in between groups i went out with my my outfitter just to scout and look around and we had shot this area one time uh, but we moved about a mile and a half south and there was just this low-lying wetland, just this little knee-deep, mucky area. And about a half mile over here was a 
big pan that had just full of Egyptian geese, and about a half mile the opposite direction was a, was a long, uh, what they call a dam, a, a, just a long skinny pond, water held by a dam full of full of uh, roosted up with uh, spur wings. And this little what they were doing was going out and feeding, and then coming up and laying up and loafing, day loafing in this mm. this low line area. And so we hatched a plan based on the wind that was forecast to put out some blinds. And and they they don't you know to me if four or five of us are going to go hunting. We, we, we get an A-blind, shoulder to shoulder, and work together, and I, I like that a lot. They don't do that that way. They like to be 25, 30 yards apart. everybody got their own shoot space, and we set out decoys. And that particular day, we shot 70 or 80 geese to include about 25 or 30 of those great big spur wings decoying. Wow. And and it's just, uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but trust you me, that, that was eye-popping to all the locals, the farmers. And they, they do hunt those birds over there. Uh, that's probably why they're so smart. They hunt those spur wings year round. That the farmers hate them mm. because you know when that when that grass or that weed or them beans get in that cotyledon stage, just sprouted up, they'll run down those rows and just depredate just them to death. Yeah. yeah. This podcast is brought to you by OnX Hunt, the app that has completely changed the game and helps you increase your success rates every time you go out in the field. It's something that we legitimately use every single day. Doesn't matter if we're talking elk hunting, deer hunting duck hunting upland hunting bass fishing it does not matter we don't go a day without using onyx hunt public and private land boundaries the new crop filters the new 3d mapping system there is not a time where onyx cannot help you and they update it all the time which helps you increase your success rates so go and check out the onyx hunt app today use the promo code primos 20 to get 20 percent off your onyx hunt membership the spurs I mean, for for y'all that are listening, spur-winged geese, they are very aptly named. It looks like they have a turkey spur in the in like in the do. elbow of their wing. Is they it do. the same kind of? It, it, is, it, it, it's, yeah, it's the same keratinous. It's right there on what would be their wrist bone, the bend of their wing. And it's uh, it is a big half to three inch quarter razor sharp spur. It is crazy looking. And 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 you know they they use them for defense. They they're they're a very aggressive bird, mm-hmm. and uh, they fight and they're territorial. And those guys will not send their dogs. And they do use labs and uh, German short hairs. They they have a retriever culture. They won't send them on a cripple spur wing. That that spur wing will, will beat them to death with that Dang spur. It, yeah. Yes, that was that you brought up something else that I was curious about. Is is there a waterfowl hunting, duck hunting culture over there locally? No, they 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 do, but it's very European. The guys that do duck hunt uh, pass you, and 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 everywhere you go duck hunting, it's just you kill a bunch of birds at times when you're doing high volume hunts. But but it's different. Just imagine if if you and I. And two of our buddies were going to go hunt this stock tank or this marsh or this wetland. Uh, we'd all be in a blind together, and never are they going to do that. They're going to have four blinds, five blinds, mm-hmm. stationed 40, 50 yards apart, and, uh, which results in sometimes, not intentionally because you're all buddies or friends, but you're kind of working against each other instead of together. But then yeah. you look at the pilot at the end of the day and go, well, you know, it's hard to argue with that. But they don't have that that duck hunting. What they do have is an upland bird culture because it's a lot of European. It's a lot of Dutch, like Afrikaans, are are uh, white Dutch ancestors. I mean that that's, yeah. that's the language. Afrikaans language is it it just it's not exactly Dutch, but it's very similar. Okay, you know the, yeah. the thank you donkey bell is kind of what it sounds like to me. It's, it's all very similar. 
and uh, bird dogs. I, I, man, they they have got a bird dog culture over there. The best the best English pointers and German shorthairs I've seen really? on the earth are from right there. Because, really? Gosh, they've got they've got like ten different varieties of of quail and Franklin. And even those driven guinea fowl, I would go just to shoot driven guinea fowl. Just imagine <laughs> a, a chicken-sized, uh, y'all y'all have all seen guinea fowl. Yeah. People yeah. have them out there in the country, uh, little salt-and-pepper-looking chickens. And you'll see them running. I mean, you'll see 20 or 50 or 100 of them just running out in a grain field. But those guys will kind of circle the wagon and push them into a draw or into a thicket. And then we'll go around the other side and form a line, a shooting line. And, and it's just that's most of what the day is: is scouting, looking guinea fowl, getting them, in, getting them hemmed up, and then getting put in put in a position. And then it's just a five-minute adrenaline rush. <laughs> when, and it's like you'll be you got to be quiet, you got to be still, and you got to be patient. You hear the beaters, you hear the dogs coming, you might hear them think, and all of a sudden you'll see one, and that's the spear tip. And all of a, next thing you know, it's just it's just salt and pepper black and white cannonballs coming over and i i would have bet anything that that bird cannot fly like he was shot from a cannon and and you know the first time years ago that i hunted them i didn't cut a feather i'm like <laughs> man those things are booking and they're tough and you know like uh it's like when you hunt ringneck pheasants if if their head don't flop back when you shoot they, they hit the ground running yep. those guinea fowl are just like that mm -hmm. but but we did we, you can go out if you hem them up and you're willing to walk fast uh, they'll hold cover. I, I, we, we did a push one day with bird dogs and I, I just knew, uh, there's a little liver German short hair on point and it got up just right here, right, right a foot away. And I'd have bet it was going to be a button quail or maybe a Franklin. No, it was a guinea fowl. And it was incredible. Yeah. It, it was really, as good as the waterfowl hunting is, the upland bird hunting in south africa is unequal and they, they have got dogs like i've never seen that's crazy mm -hmm. that's one of the things that to me has been so interesting about following along with what you do is so i mean take i don't know just take me for instance and i say that because i feel like a lot of the folks listening to this podcast will be able to fall into the same um same line of thinking so to speak i i love waterfowl hunting i love upland hunting but when i think about those things i think about the things i've done here Mm -hmm. I think about my all my duck hunts pretty much being right here in the in the along the Mississippi River and the Mississippi alluvial and you know uh, upland hunting. I've you know I've done Kansas and um, you know, but it's all here. You, right. I, I don't think about upland hunting in Africa or waterfowl hunting in Africa, and so I I was so tuned in to the stories and posts you were making last week because I'm like, man, this is a whole other world it that, is. I, that I don't even know exists. The world is so much bigger than our backyards, and and that that's really what I'm, I'm not a species collector. I'm an experience collector, and and I'm kind of becoming a experienced junkie, and and, it, and it's just <laughs> it's addictive. And you know, and right about the time we uh, in 2023. My wife and I will have been operating GetDucks.com for 20 years. Uh, six continents, 250 days for just years on end of travel, 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 experiencing, scouting, and experiencing. And right about the time, I think I've seen and done it all. And, and uh, I, for example, you know, I have shot ducks 400 feet below sea level in Netherlands. I've shot them at 16,000 foot in Peru, uh, up in the Andes Mountains. I have shot them at night. I have shot them over legal bait. I've shot them by spotlight. 
it, it, it just it never ends. It, mm-hmm. it just right about the time you think you've seen and done it all. We've passed shot them. We've we've shot them a decoy. We've shot geese. We've shot them just just all around the clock, all around the world, all the different ways. And one of the most interesting stories I ever tell. Uh, went to Russia. Zero, zero zilch none duck hunting culture. Hmm. Russians are just very practical people. A dead duck, it, that, that's a win. I mean, don't matter how you kill it. So we go eider hunting on the White Sea. And um, and I knew from talking to the folks over there, they didn't know anything about sea duck hunting or anything like that. So I actually brought some long lines and some and some decoys, you know, and going, we'd get out and I'd let my decoys out and we would just drift over to sea, you know, like your eider hunt. I get in there and uh, that boy driving a boat, thumbs up and thumbs down. And, and and I can just tell you this, thumbs up and thumbs down don't mean necessarily what you think it means. That, that's not, <laughs> I can tell a story about that too. So I get in there and I put my decoys down, I get my gun and everything, and he just gives me a thumbs up and he floored it. Whoa, man, we're just racing over these four-foot waves, bam, bam, just running. And um, and, and I'm like, you know, hey, hey he just, I show him a decoy, he's like, thumbs up and just floored it. We're going and we're going and going. And uh, we finally see some eider. And I break out the decoys, he just waves it off. No, 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 he don't, he don't need that. I get in the back seat, and this boat is, uh, just think of a little aluminum, a lightweight aluminum, I'm going to say 15-foot uh, speedboat with a little windshield on it. It's like a little 15-foot aluminum ski boat or something, a little speedboat. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I've got my feet on each gun wall pressed hard so I don't get <laughs> flopped out. I'm hanging on for dear life with my left hand, and I've got an over-and-under two-trigger Russian Kalishnikov over and under shotgun in in my right hand and he is racing and we're just hitting those waves wham bam wham and at one point i look up dear lord please don't let me come out of this boat into this 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 white sea and there's an eider there's a flock of eiders eyeball level and and it's, it's like my memory of it is slow motion we hit a wave we're four foot high it's slow motion and I'm aiming with one hand, and that eider looks to his left at me like, what the heck? And I pull the trigger, and he dies. And we hit a wave, and we slow down, and we go back and pick him up. And I'm like, okay, I've done it all now. But I really <laughs> hadn't, because right about the time I think I've done it all, somebody does something different. Oh, so I, I'm gonna... <laughs> James Bond duck hunt. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question you've probably been asked a lot of times. But I just for the sake of our listeners, I, I've, I've learned um, – just to try to you know for the, there's a very there's a possible chance there's some folks that are getting introduced to you for the first time on this podcast and so how how did you even begin like from from your i'm not asking you to tell your your beginning story you can if you want but like how did like where did all this start to make you all of a sudden you're in russia on the white sea chasing eiders how, how did Man, you even a, get there? It all started in Saskatchewan. I was just out of grad school, and I saved my money. I was working for the federal government. I wasn't making much money to save. And uh, I wanted to go to Canada and shoot migratory Canada geese. I really wanted to shoot the littles, you know, mm-hmm. the little birds. Yeah. And uh, one of my long-term and now best friends, uh, one, he started off as a professor, and now he's a great friend, Mr. Ian Munn. And I went, we booked a trip through a foremost outfitter type. And uh, you really, truly can't make up how bad that hunt was. Mm. 
it 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 started at eight o'clock in the morning, an hour and a half after shooting time, with an inebriated first American guide, so drunk he had to lean up on his truck to stand, coming to get me and Mr. Ian and four other guys we'd been mixed with who were great guys from Michigan, and it kind of went downhill from there, mm. you know. And it and and I just you know I I just you know the thing about it is like uh, the internet wasn't quite what it is now then that was a long time ago but there was an internet and you know the thing about the internet we've all learned is we can find anything on the internet the problem is social media is double double sword but anybody can be anything online yeah and uh and and so we learned that lesson the hard way uh wasted a lot of money and and it was just a, a very very memorably bad hunt and I got out and did some research, uh, magazines and telephone calls and uh, a little bit of Internet back in the day, Yahoo. God, I don't even think Google existed. <laughs> and uh, and I talked to an outfitter named Jeff Klotz from Alberta. Now he's been retired since about 2007 or eight. And um, he later described it as a, as a two-hour interrogation and uh, like a rubber hose and bright, bright light. You know, <laughs> one, one bit twice, yeah, I had a lot of questions for him. And we went up there, and I talked for my buddies into going. And um, the following year, maybe eight to ten people went with us because we had such a great time. And the third year, he called me out to drink a cold beer in the barn with him and his staff. And he said, Randy, I want you to be a booking agent for me. I said, great. What the heck's a booking agent? I'm a forester with the U.S. federal government. And he said, no. He said, he said you know, Ramsey, man, these guys you're bringing up here, they, they got a good attitude, they're packed right, they know how to tip, they know how to call, they know how to shoot, they go with the flow, blah, blah, blah. So he's like, you know, I said, well, yeah, we talk. And he said, all my staff wants to take people you send up here from Mississippi. And uh, I just think you ought to, and he said, and here's how it works. And he kind of explained how, how it worked to me. And I came back home and said, we know there were chat rooms back in the day, like there wasn't social media, it was all chat rooms. And I said, well, how do I reach more people than just the people I know? And so I came up with this idea of a website. That's what that's what kind of the thing to do was this thing called a website. And a, a good friend of mine, now deceased, Mr. Harden Phillips, uh, built my first incarnation of GetDucks.com. And I had two products. I did wildlife habitat consulting and sold Alberta, Canada. Never dreamed, uh, never dreamed in, that would have been uh, 99 or 2000, never dreamed it would turn into something that was going to be my next question is if you ever ever in your mind pictured that no. that would take you to no, Russia, i, or I never Africa. i never dreamed that you know it, it went on for a while and uh i found a passion for it uh and that would have been like i say way back when we officially incorporated uh, maybe we started the website in 2001 or two and we incorporated and did a did a llc paperwork you know in 2003 and um, but it was just a part-time job. And what I learned, though, there's a lot of, there to this day. There are a lot of quote booking agents unquote. And, and let me just say this: I hate that term it, because there's so many. It's such a nefarious industry. There's so many part-time asphalt contractors and taxidermists and wannabes trying to hustle up free hunts and do this thing. It it, it kind of gives us all a black a black eye unless yeah. you've earned a reputation. Yeah. And uh. But but I did learn um, in time. That it, it just it grew to a period of time, Lake, that I realized if you book a trip to go, whether it be Oklahoma or Argentina or Azerbaijan, you deserve my my full time attention. Mm-hmm. 
Not, not, not when I'm in a business meeting, not when I'm done doing something else. For example, I can tell you this. I, I say this all the time, too. Uh, the first thing I do, just like the rest of the world, the first thing I do when I wake up is look at my telephone. Before my feet hit the floor, <laughs> I look at my cell phone. But the first app I look at is my calendar because I've got people traveling all the time. And I just kind of need to know that Lake's traveling today. And, and I don't carry it around the top of my head all day who's traveling, but I've just got an awareness. Okay, yeah. th- th- this party's moving in Mazatlan. This party's moving, you know, th- this transfer day. Because here's what I've learned. If you call me at 10 o'clock at night on a transfer day, you're not going to say I found a cold beer in Atlanta airport. <laughs> Something has come off the rails. <laughs> and, and I had a, I had a, a kind of a corporate type tell me, uh, he heard me at a camp at about 11 o'clock at night talking to a client one time. And I hung up, and he said, man, you, you've been doing this long enough now. You can hire people to do that. And I said, no, I can't hire people to talk to my clients at 11 o'clock at night when something's come off the rails. They, they, they wrote me a check, and they need me, or really the brains of the operation, my wife. Mm-hmm. They need our assistance, and that's how this works. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and I think building on that for 20 years is kind of how we've become what we did. Of course. You know, and, and I'll, I'll, say, I'll tell you the story about Russia. Uh, when I left federal government, it, it wasn't like a plan. And not, none of this was planned. It just it just it was a need. You know, I I needed to do this. Uh, my business commanded that I do it. And we got a call uh, inviting us to come to Russia and take a look. And man, money was tight. And um, but I saw this opportunity. You know, I said I need to do this. And um, oh man, my wife put her foot down. But I won that argument. And I went. And we came back and we we blogged it and we built I built the web page and I blogged it and I did all this and did all that. And she had asked the question, how many people do you really think will go to Russia to shoot a Capricagli is what we were after, really. Mm-hmm. I said, not many, but I, th- I think it's a good investment. And about a week or two after we went online with it and we're just kind of propagating it around in chat rooms and, you know, photo galleries and blogs and whatnot. My web guy called up in a terror. Uh, he was in Dallas, the guy I was working with at the time, and he said, man, something's going on with your web page. I'm fixing to have to move you to a full-blown dedicated server. It's about to melt. I go, what's going on? He goes, you've got 50 times the daily traffic. And um, and by putting something, an experience up that the world had never seen, it led them to the website, and while they were there, like, well, man, if this guy's got Russia, let's see what else he's got. Yeah. And that, that was kind of a, a pivotal point in how we started to spread out. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's like I said, there's really, and I promise I'm not I'm not doing this just to blow smoke. You know, there's really no one else that, that I mean, when you think about me, again, I keep going back to me because I feel like there's a lot of people in the same boat as me. You think about here, if, you, if you're going to branch out a little bit, you might think about Argentina. But you still, you ain't thinking about Russia and the Netherlands and no. Africa. And that's just so, it's so nuts to me because I keep going back to there's just all these other worlds that if you are truly someone that appreciates waterfowl hunting, then that kind of stuff is going to intrigue you. You, you know, know what, what's, become a, what's become a real big thing in the world of duck hunting now? Um, and, and hunting, duck hunting is subjective. But I have seen a transition in duck hunters. Uh, an evolution in duck hunter mentality mm-hmm. just in the 20 years I've been doing this. For example, one of the uh, first two or three questions somebody would ask 20 years ago when they called to go 
to Mexico or Argentina was how many ducks am I going to kill? <laughs> yeah. That's the first question. Yeah. And, and now, if they ask it, it's one of the last questions. And, and it's more like, well, what's the limit or when do they stop your, you know, what, what what's average? And it's become more of a, uh, I've seen a transition, I think, from an old, greedy, can't kill enough ducks to fill some hole in his soul to just a guy looking for a quality experience. Yeah. Experience being the key word, quality being a key word. And and, and, and as proof of that, I'll, I'll tell you, there's there's a couple of, uh, quote, contests running around about uh, collecting 41 North American species. Mm-hmm. Well, man, 20 years ago, there was just a handful of guys that were bird nerds enough to get into that, and now it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, there's competitions, there's contests, there's awards, and it's awesome because there are a lot of people I know that are mm-hmm. collecting and first off, I don't believe there's 41. I think there's close to 55 or 60 because I count subspecies. You know, they've, they've got right. the Canada geese. Back when I was in school, it was 11 races of Canada geese. Now it's seven races of, of big geese and uh, four races of, of cacklers. Right. But still. Uh, and there's two species of brant and four species of common eider. And if you want to speciate it that way. And uh, begin to suggest however you want to count it, count it your way. But there, there's a big thing. Well, let me ask you this. What happens if you collect the 41? Do you just quit and go play golf? <laughs> it's a mighty dang big world of six continents worth of birds. Yeah. And, you know, we built a uh, – and, and i tell you something else. We just – just just as a uh, resource, we built a, a page on – getducks.com now has 2,000 Google Index pages – but we built a page just just as a reference, just as a resource. That's called the North American Waterfowl List. Mm-hmm. My list of subspecies. If you click Mallard to show you all the hunts in the world that you can shoot a Mallard duck on, for example, tell you a little bit about the species, and and in addition to like uh, biological bird book type information. If I've done some, if I if I if I've written a little blog or something about the anecdotal personal observations dealing with red shovelers or Pacific. Uh, black ducks I'll, I'll put it on there too kind of a hunter perspective right and we just learned in the last couple of years that um out of one and a half million page impressions two hundred fifty thousand unique visitors a year that is the third or fourth most visited page on our website yeah because people are looking at that so we built a, a world waterfowl list now the world waterfowl list is different in that it's not all the world waterfowl species it's just all the ones we got under the wheelhouse and you wouldn't gotcha. believe how many people call us lake that want to go to Mongolia, want to go to Argentina, want to go to Australia, want to go to Eurasia or somewhere to collect certain species. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, <clears throat> I'll say this, I, I do have a lot of stuffed ducks. I really don't collect species. I collect experiences. Yeah. You know, I, I've got a, a little game room at camp, and mostly just uh, first and last and first retrieves, first ducks, last ducks, whatever, you know. Uh, and some of these species we carry to conventions and shows for eye candy. But but I realized as uh I just realized one time that somebody would come over and they'd point to a bird, man, we know when we start talking about that red crested poacher or that marble teal or whatever, you know. And every story always came back to people. Yeah. That guide, that place, that language, that culture, that morning. It's never about the bird. It's never about the trigger pull. It was always, it, it, it really was a placeholder for a 
bigger experience than yeah. just a dead duck. It, it represents a lot more than just that than just Actually, that critter there. It is. Yeah. I ask you something. I was talking to some buddies of mine the other day, and I, I'm curious to get your opinion on this, especially with what you were talking about earlier with there being a shift that you've seen in your in your time in doing this. I told them, and I, I hope I don't make anybody mad saying this or I might, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but what I what I've seen, just personal observation, you know, because we cover, especially on this podcast, you know, Primo's hunting. I mean, we've got deer, elk, waterfowl, turkey, predator. Um, just personal observation. It's an opinion of mine that I, you know, it's an educated opinion. I feel like, but. I feel I said I was talking about buddy. I said I feel like if you were to, you got some hunters they're gonna do a little bit of everything, and then you've got some hunters that they they may hunt you know a little bit of everything when they can't, but they're going they they really get they, their fire really gets lit by one specific That's thing. Right, yeah. You've got guys that are like that with deer. You've got guys like that or that with turkeys. But there's like one group of people I call them the feather enthusiast. Yeah, waterfowl, upland guys, turkey guys, and I what I was saying I said I feel like with those guys they when you hear them talk about that specific pursuit if you hear them talking about a specific hunt if you hear them talking about a particular species a particular state they went to a particular country whatever you hear a more you hear almost a more romanced tone they're not as much there's not as much like if i'm talking to a deer guy they may be focused a whole lot more on tactics yeah. on strategies whereas if you're talking to a turkey guy or a waterfowl guy you're hearing just so much more just and i again i'm not saying one's right and one's wrong it's just something about those feather guys to me it seems like there's just a, a heavier romance for that it, particular I, hunt and species i think absolutely there is and 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 um i can speak more to waterfowling but look at the um antiquity value the generational uh value and threshold in waterfowling look at the old decoys the uh the old duck calls the granddad's old shotgun um granddad's uh, sears and roebuck's 1970 duck vest i mean it goes on and on and on and on and uh i don't see that in elk hunting or deer hunting or sheep hunting you don't Mm. see that you don't Mm -hmm. you don't you don't have that collector's uh antiquity that, that mm. in any other sport that, that's, 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 that's interesting isn't it yeah you know we we got a podcast and we talked to a lot of people around the country and it's always interested me when i get off into some of these parts of the world that they did a lot of hand carved decoys you know uh back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and these guys were selling you know a mom and a, a husband and wife sitting around their shop and, and carving decoys and hand painting decoys and selling them for two and a half dollars never dreaming that in in today's dollars, it'd be a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollar piece <laughs> yeah. of art. Yeah, which in their time we discount for time. You know, would have been would have been worth you know ten or fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and they're giving them away. But why, why is that? You know, there's something. It is a romance. It is an allure. And you know what's appealed to me? Uh, and I'll say this: I, I do a little bit of big game hunting. Um. I, I like to hunt management bucks. I like to hunt small black bears. <laughs> you know, I, I I do the duck hunting part. My clients take their once in a year, whatever, trip of a lifetime vacation on some of our hunts. I do it kind of for a living and just 
for something different to do with a vacation. I like to go shoot stuff with a rifle. Sure. But because it's different. It doesn't involve wearing waders or standing in water. It's just different. And um, But I love to duck hunt, and, and it, it, there is a progression to it. it it's, it's become... And I'll shoot, man. I go to some of these countries. And you can shoot and shoot. Give me four, give me four boxes of shells and duck enough to shoot them. I'm happy. But I can go sit out there in Mississippi with my son or my friends and shoot three ducks and have to play for keeps to get those three ducks and be just as happy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. It's just it's about playing a clean game. It's about a technique. It's mm. about it's just something different about it. Yeah. It, it's all about context. Yeah. Um, I feel. Yeah. No. I, I'm. I'm. I'm with you there. It's all about it. I mean, like you said, it's all about the experience of it. It truly. is truly, and and waterfowl hunting or, or even bird hunting is a social sport. Very. I get bored to tears, man. If it weren't for the internet and cellular connectivity sitting on a deer stand, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would never do it. Yeah. Well, I was, I was telling folks like like for me the first the first type of hunting that I fo- that I truly fell in love with was turkey hunting. Yeah. And I tell folks because when I was younger. Uh, I got started out deer hunting. There was no iPhones. I'd get bored to death sitting up there. Yeah. But you throw turkey hunting in the mix. I'm moving around. We're making noise. The the thing we're hunting, the turkey is making noise back. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Right. So it, it was stuff going on. I think, and I, like this may be just a, a personal. It's a personal thing to me for sure. I think another thing going specifically with like the upland guys, the waterfowl guys, is uh, the dog involvement. I know oh, that's yeah. that's huge for me absolutely like i I took uh the first upland trip i went on was probably eh, four or five years ago now and don't get me wrong thoroughly enjoyed it loved it it's like we'll be back got to do that again the next time i went back i had my own dog and the appreciation i had for it it more than doubled just because it's just it was a whole different level of you know it was like me getting out with the dog and you tying the uplands and the birds and the country it just changed everything. They're the most willing accomplice in the world is your dog. Oh my God! No matter how good he is, he he he's your biggest cheerleader and your biggest hunting partner. <laughs> you know, and it it it's it's uh, man, the most miserable duck season I've ever had was uh, I had a, had a dog die right before duck season. And she was one of the best dogs I ever owned, and and I was hunting in a camp that time that everybody had really good dogs, but it just wasn't the same to not be in mine. Yeah, and uh, that yeah. that adds a tremendous amount of component are the retrievers. Um, one of my favorite jokes, uh, internet meme type things, is lock your <laughs> wife and your dog in the trunk on a hot day and open it up and see who's glad to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's your, that's yeah. your, that's your dog, man. He's yeah. glad, he don't care. He's glad to see you. Yeah. I, uh, I remember, um, it's like the second Upland trip Knox had ever been on and it was, we were there four or five days, but it was the last day we were there and the weather went. The weather turned way more drastic than the forecast had called for. I mean, we knew it was going to be cold, but they did not anticipate the high winds and the temperature to drop even further and for it to start snowing like crazy. So we were not prepared for it clothing-wise. And we were collectively, I think we had maybe, it was like two or three pheasants to go before we had a full, I mean, everyone was limited out. And I remember there was a discussion I mean, because we had already, I walked, I don't know how how much that day, because it was all full wild stuff, not release birds or anything. Someone, I can't remember who it was out of the three of us, you know, started kicking around the idea. We're like, you know, we've had a really good trip. This is the last day. There's only three more pheasants left to kill them. You know, maybe we should call it, you know, we don't. But I remember looking down and seeing Knox 
Knox is out there. He's got snow all over his back and ears, and this look in his eyes. He had the same amount of drive as he did the first morning oh, yeah. we started. And I said, I, I can't throw in the towel. That little joker there still wants to go. That's right. And then, <laughs> we couldn't stop, you know. So we ended up pushing it and, and finishing out. But that's, that's just those dogs, man, they make a difference. I mean, I know why I go duck hunting. I've never figured out why my dog does, other than the fact she loves me. <laughs> I mean, why, why why is she hitting that cold water and breaking out of ice to go get that duck yeah. that she's not going to eat? That's a good point. You know, I've never it, thought it, of that. It's just it, they've they've got that heart <laughs> for it, and uh, you're you're right. You know, I, I it, that reminds me of a, a non duck hunting story. There used to be a big hog hunter uh, group around here named Melvin. I wish I could remember his last name, but he was a world class hog hunter and had just a pack of dogs and a horse and go getter and i just remember the story one time they were over in the delta on panther track or panther burn whatever they call it property and uh his dog bait up a hog on a cold january day out on this little uh, island in a bar pit and the man stripped down to his tidy whitey as they say and and put his bowie knife in his mouth and swam out there and stabbed the hog and pulled the hog back and they're like well, why why would you do that and he goes no ma'am my dog bait that dog and i gotta i gotta respect and honor him mm. they but they did that for me and i'm gonna kill that hog for them yeah <laughs> you know I, I ain't never had to go swimming from a dog yet you know but uh yeah that's a heck of a story that is you know? a story i understand that though from being you know from being a dog owner i like i, I if, if i could see myself being in a similar situation initially being like why but when he came back with that explanation i'm like well i can't yeah. argue with that you got to honor them dogs you yeah know? they do a whole lot for us but it's a big world of duck hunting out there and and, and you know it, but if you just look at the united states as compared to the rest of the world there there's so many profound distinctions that truly set us apart from everybody else you you look at the species diversity we got divers we got sea ducks we got puddle ducks we got geese uh 40 some odd species from coast to coast north to south and, and and then as you start getting off into these different flyways even if you get into the mallard culture uh the puddle duck culture let's say you know you get off into to oregon versus south louisiana versus arkansas versus delaware the cadence, uh, the te- it's all kind of familiar, but the calls, the, the cadences, the, the decoys, the spread, it's just so many little nuances to it. Mm-hmm. We've elevated everything to art form, e- e- from camo to ammo to shotguns to motors to equipment and gear and techniques. Uh, we are the most passionate. But then what really sets us apart is the conservation. I mean, man, nobody spends money no other country spends money surveying and putting the science and the data together into waterfowl conservation and habitat conservation through state and federal governments through ngos through people like me and you going to banquets and spending money and and excise taxes and federal duck stamps Mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's an unequaled commitment to the resource that you really don't see anywhere else yeah. on earth. You know, when we go to Argentina, when we go to parts of Mexico, when we go to some of these far-flung countries, part of the reason that the duck hunting is so good is because there's really not any duck hunting pressure. Yeah. And here in America, we all duck hunt, or a lot of us duck hunt. We're, we're, we're almost duck hunting ourselves out of business. There's so much hunting pressure, um, which is another story. But but at the same time, we are we are... 
we're paying it forward like yeah. nobody else on earth is doing for waterfowl yeah and you can speak to that personally just because you've seen so much i've seen it you yeah. know it, it's it's incredible i mean you know we're we're really truly blessed i mean there's a lot of changes at the landscape level in terms of habitat habitat quality seed crops water distribution weather there's so it's just it's just a death by a thousand cuts but man we hunters are committed to it yeah and we're 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 putting money into it we're putting our money we're putting our money and our time where our mouths are yeah and really not many other people can say that on earth yeah it's interesting and it's something that you wouldn't know have you not peeked outside the boundaries of just the united states or north america so to speak that's right like for instance for instance this may be a whole different topic i'm not sure but um one thing that i that i that i piqued my interest is last week in africa you were doing some kind of like like tissue samples or, or something man that that yeah and that was that was so cool as uh dr philip lavretsky down at the university of texas el paso didn't know who he was when he came into my booth at sei a couple of years ago and he specifically asked about african yellow-billed ducks and african black ducks well you know in that crowd, when people come and ask me about species, I kind of default into action on, hey, well, let's hear where we go hunting. And he listened. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm really not interested in, in hunting them. I, I, I need tissue samples. And we started talking about, he is, he is, uh, he started off, as I remember, he did a podcast with us. He started off doing research on Mexican ducks, which are one of the five matter-like species mm-hmm. here in North America. And then he did model ducks and then he investigated the uh presumed genetic extinction of black ducks because of mallard hybridization and disproved that genetically and then he kind of discovered this really scary phenomena that a lot of mallards that were propagated in the atlantic flyway where mallards did not exist 150 years ago until state and federal and private entities established them well they didn't go out west and get wild genetics they got european tame like genetics to put these ducks out and those ducks um you know just in the last 20 years the atlanta flyway mallard population has gone from 1.4 million to 400,000 ducks mm. and it's kind of scary yeah and he's not saying this but his data supports the notion that it's because of that old world genetic. They don't have the survivability that they can't forage in wild habitats. They got lower productivity. And he's starting to pick those genetics up in the upper Mississippi flyway. Uh, he was telling me, I believe it was Michigan, that a random sample of 10 mounted ducks in Michigan, 80% of them are those old world genetics. And so I asked him this question in the booth. I said, well, uh, those, do those tame-like ducks, those old world genetics, have a genetic cue to migrate? He goes, no. Well, well, that that could answer a lot of questions in the deep south where our mallards are going. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, he he's building a uh, genetic database, and he he asked. He knew I was going over here, and he said, "Would you mind?" I said, "Heck, no, I'd love to." And uh, so what we ended up doing is is he he really wanted the African black duck. That is a very very hard species to get they, they they call them black river ducks in africa they they and don't think mississippi river think uh creek you know cutting through the the dry terrain and they might have a home range of a mile and a half and they live in that stretch of river and you just gotta walk and and i i walked about four miles on a stretch of river that there was supposed to be two or three pair and i found one duck and i killed him 
And that was the first wild derived, uh, first ever wild harvested African black duck to go into his DNA study. I wow. hope we, hope we'll get more next year. But then we started doing. I started doing uh, collecting tissue off of some of these African yellow bill ducks. And um, and you know what was so interesting is, is we weren't just connecting genetic tissue. And uh, he wanted me to get some biological measurements. You know, wing and bill and tarsus and weight and body length. It's funny, you ever thought about how all the matter ducks laid on the bow of the boat look alike? Mm-hmm. Man, we start putting a caliper and ruler to them, you realize that just like people, there's tall and skinny and short <laughs> and stocky. And, and even even I would get like a half dozen here and four over here and four over there. And we got down to Zulu land, and all of a sudden, and the Zulu land, Zulu landers are, uh, as I think of them, are typically kind of a tall people down there. And, uh, Man, those dead gum African yellow bills were tall. They were long. <laughs> really? They were like, I was like, wow, you know, the half dozen there were a lot longer than yeah. the ones from elsewhere. And so it was just kind of interesting seeing, you don't notice that looking over the top of a shotgun at ducks. You yeah. start measuring them, looking at them. So I hope something will come forward. I hope to have him on our podcast to kind of more, to better explain what comes of that study. Yeah. You know, what comes of that genetic uh, research. That's incredibly interesting. Do you like, do you know what? exactly he's trying to learn from from getting that or just trying i, I don't know that, that i i really don't i know i know kind of how he, he did the north american uh mallard what led one to the next on on how some of this stuff is uh-huh. going but now we're uh we're hoping to work with him this is interesting it, especially if you're from texas this is interesting they 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 classify just as a kind of a colloquial term they call all of the model ducks black ducks which I'd be surprised if there's a real American black duck down in Texas, but it could be. And hen mallard, they all they kind of call them colloquially dusky ducks, okay. brown ducks. And man, I'm, I'm hearing rumors that there's a good chance that they're going to close the dusky duck, the model duck season down in Texas, because uh, their their typical habitat is kind of that coastal area, Katy, Texas, over in eastern Texas along the Gulf Coast, and their numbers aren't doing well. But something interesting has happened is that, uh, according to them, they're starting to see model ducks pop up in real non-traditional areas. Like, think uh, kind of out west where, that, where it makes that big big bend, you know, on the, on the southern state line. They're starting to see a lot of model ducks pop up. And mm-hmm. uh, they're trying to get some genetic. The state has asked him to do, as I understand it, do some genetic sampling to see what's up with that you know now i don't know what comes to that but he, he reached out to us see if we could uh do some outreach do some podcasts work through some of these organizations and people yeah. that we know down there to gain access on those ranches to get a few birds like i did in africa to get a few of these model ducks to do some genetic sampling it, mm. it's i tell you this lake there's a lot of you know there's a lot that's really not known in this modern day and age about a lot of these species and a lot of these ducks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, boy, I think, I think a lot of genetic sampling could answer a lot of questions um, that leave us scratching our heads down here. What, yeah. What's happening to our ducks? I mean, man, is there really, is there really some kind of old-world genetic, non-migratory genetic, farm duck-type genetic incorporating mallards in the Atlantic and Mississippi flywheel, like, you know, there's a perception, um, and all the guys listening that, that duck hunt, yeah. we've all assumed that the migration, mallard migration, is shifting to the west. You hear that a lot. You yeah. hear it a lot. But what his 
studies, his genetic studies support is the notion that because of this old world genetic um, infiltrating the Atlantic and Mississippi flyway populations, it's almost like a spigot is turning off. And when you get out right now to the Central and Pacific flyways, those mallards that we perceive is still migrating or all our mallards moving that way really are just a, a new world genetic that has always migrated. Mm. That's that's kind of interesting to me. That's very interesting. You know, it's interesting and it's it's a it's it's interesting and it's also downright scary, alarming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was. Gonna, it's alarming yeah. almost. It, it, it made my head explode when he started explaining this to me yeah. in, in, a, in a podcast. I'm like, it, it just it just man, the most iconic waterfowl species, billions upon billions of dollars. We were talking about the sportsmen putting a lot of research. Mm-hmm. These NGOs, the federal government. And all of a sudden, we've got the genetic. He actually made, um, drew the uh, comparison between put-and-take bobwhite quail, put-and-take pheasants, uh, rainbow. You know, what we did to a lot of these streams out west by introducing mm. rainbow and brown trout is, is they just took over the joint. They, yeah. they they kind of, to the derision of the native cutthroat. Yep. Wow. You know, and, and it's, it's harmful uh, for that environment. Yeah. But for me to think that, you know, it's possible based on some of his, his research that, I mean, it's possible that, that the only way my great-grandkids will kill mallard ducks in the south is if we go turn them out before the season. That's scary, man. That's real scary. Well, and I think about that because I, I, I've, I've told this story on here before. I guess it relating back to quail. I still, I didn't get on any of the actual wild hunting, but I can remember my grandfather when i was little they taught i can remember my grandfather and his brothers and cousins and you know when they were they were in their i mean when i was four or five years old they were in their 70s and i remember stories of quail hunting that's what they loved to do and actually my my mother just recently it was this past fall she found an old an old black and white picture of my granddad i think it was it was two of his brothers and a cousin of theirs and an English pointer in Webster County, Mississippi. Really? Quail hunting. Yes. Really? And I and and that's what I to think about that that's what my mind went to cuz now I mean you can kind of you can kind of you can attempt to hunt wild quail in this state. That's tough. But to your point, again like if you want to that's what I lord to think of that happening to duck hunting down here. It makes you wonder. You know, there's there's just a lot of stuff. You know, now I I, I don't want to I don't never use the word global warming because I I don't I don't buy into all that politics of it. But but you know there is a a natural carbon cycle since the dawn of time. There's just a natural carbon cycle to the to the earth. You know, uh, for example, you know all these glaciers that are melting. Mm-hmm. You know, back before they existed, Arizona was the bottom of an ocean. That's mm-hmm. a fact. Yeah, they find T Rex bones and the mountains of Mongolia, where it gets minus 50. T-Rex didn't live in minus 50. So we know there's been some major changes. Yeah. And we just can't think that that everything is going to stay the same because everything in the universe changes. Yeah. That's just how it is. Even on a micro level, that's on true. On a micro yeah. level, yeah. It, just, it just changes. It has to. But i tell you something interesting. You know, we, we think about, well, the ducks ain't coming south anymore and the ducks ain't doing this. But, but this year um, – this year, I just had this revelation in the state of Mississippi that things changed in the other directions, too. 
Uh, my son, Forrest, who, who loves a turkey hunt and, and, and keeps up with you a lot and listens to this podcast religiously, probably because it's turkey hunting. <laughs> um, we were at camp down in Warren County, and he went to some public land and uh, scouted, and he came back and invited me and my buddy, Mr. Ian, to come hunting with him. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I hunted some public land, let alone a mile and a half walk into a duck hole. <laughs> and he was telling us on the walk in, he says, man, there's a lot of whistling ducks here. I go, get out of here. He said, no, there's a lot of daddy, there's a lot of black belly whistling ducks. And uh, I'm 55 years old and have shot black bellies elsewhere, but never in the state of Mississippi in January. They usually bug out. You know, when Katrina hit, black bellies kind of started taking over the joint. They started being all up throughout the Mississippi Delta during breeding yeah. season, but they take off during till season. And we walked into a um, a duck hole, and there were eight of us, and we almost we almost killed a full eight limits, but it was unbelievable how many black belly whistling ducks we shot. Really? And so I was doing a little podcast episode, and we got talking about this, and I, I just said, well, how far, how far north are these birds? I mean, how, how far north are you guys seeing these birds? I started hearing people in Delaware, Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota. They're breeding up there now. And, and it's like, yeah. it, it just made me think, man, when my son's my age, maybe he's walking out with his kid one day saying, I can remember, I can remember when your granddaddy killed his first black belly whistling duck, and now it's just a bread and butter duck. Yeah. you, you got to figure there's going to be changes all around the board. Well, I can rem- I can remember I was uh, I was working for a place um, in Drew, Mississippi, and uh, I, I was 17 or 18 at the time, and they had said they had seen a black belly whistling duck. Yeah. And I said, do what? Yeah. You know, and I, I had heard I had heard of one of those. I knew, yeah. but I was like, Here? Like, you sure you thought you didn't think you saw it, but you ain't sure. He's had a picture of one. But like you said, you're you're definitely hearing of that a lot more. A lot more. I didn't know it was happening up in Delaware. They, they, I, I got a picture sent to me by a friend this year of a pear in a tree in Delaware. Yeah. I mean, that's the entire flyway. Yeah. And, when we were in uh, uh, Florida – that's all those guys were talking about was those blackberry black right. whistling ducks. That's right. How many of them there are? Uh, it's it's a, and again, and I may be way off with this, but you know, you were talking about how Katrina, Katrina had effects on that. Like to me, it's easier for me to, which I wouldn't even obviously I, I don't consider that to be a negative thing i think that's a pretty not katrina but these ducks making yeah, their way that, right. that's a cool thing but like a, a drastic change like that or a change i can swallow it more when it was a natural occurrence like katrina happened obviously katrina was a terrible thing but it was a, a natural disaster it's like i can i can swallow that more like the whole mallard deal if you can really tie that to old world genetics genetics that were introduced that weren't that humans introduced it's like i have a harder time accepting that one i do too you know what i'm or the same go back to introducing the 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 rainbows and the browns and running the you know the native trout species out i don't i have a hard time with that yeah you know you know what i mean i, I feel like I there's a difference you. there but but you know there's so many changes that have happened like this one blows my mind drive through the mississippi delta arkansas delta missouri delta during duck season this day and age and it You'll see entire sections covered with snow geese. Yeah. When I was my son's age, so 30-something years ago, my first trip away from Mississippi where I grasped the concept of there's duck season outside the state of Mississippi was I drove down to Katy, Texas because I'd 
to, to shoot snow geese. It's been the mid to late 90s. And um, because that's where you went to shoot snow geese. And the limit was five then. And uh, only five. On the best of days, you shot five snow geese. But then you realized that uh, back at the turn of the century, late 1800s, man, those snow geese were coming off the Arctic. You didn't have agriculture from here to there, mm. from here to northern Saskatchewan. It was prairie. And they would stay in some of these big marshes, and their terminal point was the Gulf Coastal Marsh in Louisiana and Texas. They were marsh birds. And what's a surrogate for marsh? Emergent marsh, rice field. And as rice industry expanded, they began to shortstop, and, and to them, it was hard telling the difference between rice and marsh. Mm-hmm. Only they didn't have to fly as far. And now they've kind of evolved in just, what, 150 years to... They don't go to the marsh anymore. They they go to rice fields and bean fields, and they you know they they stop further north. That's, mm. That changes, man. It's just inevitable. Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, and I just think I think about the changes I've seen in just in my short, not even my lifetime, but just the time that I actually started paying attention to those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I could t- I could you and I both could probably talk on that for hours. <laughs> we probably could. You know, I, I can remember being in college and all the hippies were protesting the cutting up the rainforest and uh what what an environmental travesty that was and, and i'm gonna tell you what scares me the most uh, there's a lot of habitat changes in america unavoidable we got to feed the world we got to farm we, we we got humanity needs humanity comes first but man when you start looking at the scope and the scale of the gulf coastal marsh loss it's scary mm. i mean you know you go down like you go down to places like lake charles louisiana and speckle belly goose hunting is bigger than Catholicism. I mean, that, it's a religion, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. and, and uh And whereas 20, 30 years ago, 80 percent of the mid-continent population of speckle belly geese flew to southwest Louisiana, now only 18 percent. Wow. You've got sugarcane, you've got crawfish farms with propane cannons, you've got habitat changes, you've got hunting pressure, you've got coastal marsh loss. You know, and, and it, it just to go back to this dusky duck season in Texas, nobody knows, but I mean, if you ask me to take a wild guess, that maybe the reason those birds are declining or not using that area is because of Gulf habitat, Gulf coastal deterioration. You know, and, and we may we may not, we, we may never... Uh, we may never know until too late just how yeah. important, how far are we from uh, Venice, Louisiana right here, Lake? Four hours, five yeah, hours? Yeah, four or five, I'd say. Takes a duck takes a duck half a day or less to fly it out. Tell when he could, he, could, he could leave there this afternoon and, and be at my camp in the morning, sitting on the water, drinking and eating. And, and you know, we, we'd always, I'd always felt like I seen back in the good old days, you could tell a notable difference in gadwall and green wing till towards the end of the season after they fed it out and they're ready to go they'd come back from the south and set up in mississippi and arkansas mm-hmm. or if a storm surge or hurricane event happened that uh, a lot of saltwater intrusion got rid of some of their native submerging aquatic and plant stuff, stuff down on the gulf coast you'd see a lot more for the year and man you start talking to folks on the louisiana gulf coast today it's 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 terrible i mean it's tragic yeah 
it, it, and it's not just the death of a resource, it's the death of a duck hunting culture. A lifestyle. A culture, yeah. a lifestyle. I, I've had, I'm sure you've probably had more of those conversations, but I've had those same conversations. You hear those same stories. And it, it, they, they talk, the guys that are from down there, they talk like the, it's almost like the same tone as if they lost a loved one. Oh, or if they're watching. A way of life. A, yeah. And you, like, it's, it's no one really knows what to do. You know, I, I don't know that we can get our can can yeah. do anything about it. I, I'll say this, you know, I've got friends. Uh, for example, I love love duck hunting in of all places, the Great Salt Lake of Utah. Mm. It, it has got a history going back to to uh, market hunting days and uh, the, the Intercontinental Railroad development. And man, they've got just such great public resources and private resources dozens and dozens and dozens of uh clubs that are over 100 years old wow but as i talk to my close friends out there they they all say you know we got duck hunting but we don't have a culture Hmm. of duck hunting like y'all do in the deep south and that's the truth man you know uh, um there's a real hunting culture in the south louisiana mississippi you know, Arkansas, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a culture. It's a part yeah. of our fabric. It runs deep. Yeah. Very, very, yeah. very deep. It, it's it's almost, like I said, it's almost part of the DNA down here. It is. In some people. And you can, like I said, you you hear that on the, on, and that reflects when good things are happening or bad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's astounding to me. It really is. Because it's like you never can fully, as much as you heart, as, for me, it's like if I try to, understand the full grasp of it it's like i can't like it's Mm. just bigger than bigger than i can wrap my head around how far it how far that influence has reached it's real important to me maybe because of what you just articulated that that my kids and my grandkids hunt and have the opportunity to hunt and and to get Mm. this you know like of all things you know you know what i love about i love people uh even though I got a wallflower personality, I do like to talk and and relate to people. And one thing I love about going to Africa, like we we stay at this bed and breakfast because you kind of you land late and it's just a good place to lay flat after a long long trip and eat a good dinner and get a little bit of sleep if you can. And the thing I love about staying at bed and breakfast is everybody there going hunting, or nearly everybody. You get on a plane coming back to Atlanta or Newark or wherever you're coming. I mean. I just feel like half the folks have been hunting. It's so easy to strike a conversation. <laughs> What'd you hunt? How'd you do? It's just so easy yeah. to start, start up a conversation. And of all places, we were in Newark, New Jersey. And I've, I have had some scary dealings, some stressful dealings with anti-hunters, especially uh, one of my most famous stories was Netherlands, where my, my name, Ramsey Russell, get ducks, literally got called on the Netherlands Parliament floor. Called them for a cessation of hunting, commercial hunting activities in Netherlands. Where, but but anyway, of all things, I'm sitting there talking to this lady, and uh, she's a spear hunter, which I think it pretty, pretty dang wicked that that anybody goes and hunts something with a spear, like I, big I, game I, hunting. But she yeah, been big game hunting with spears. <laughs> that's, I, yeah, that's pretty I, cool. God, man, the coolest people you meet having yeah. these conversations. And I know where come this Antifa looking. I mean, boy, he got that long uh, look like a shoulder length perm with a mask on and if i said antifa boom that's him right if he'd had a hoodie on that said antifa he couldn't look more like antifa <laughs> okay yeah and just gotta know where he come up you know, of course i'm i've shot too many shotgun shells i can't hear it thunder sometimes you know and uh 
And I thought, he said something about biodiversity and the shame. But a typical low talker that's used to maybe uh, maybe sniping you on Facebook from anonymously. But face to face, he's a low talking little sure, wimp. Sure, sure. And I go, sir? He said, yeah, yeah biodiversity. And boy, I mean, he just, of all the people in the world to call out, uh, and, and I said, well, you know, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You know what part of Africa you, you've been to because it's all about, you know, pay, pay to play. Africa just it is stereotypical example of if it pays it stays hunting is conservation commodity value it is the textbook case whether you're talking rhinos or leopards or elephants or geese or ducks or nothing it, it, africa wrote the book on the commodity value in wildlife conservation and right. for all people for him somebody come say something to me and interrupt me in an adult conversation and start start that foolishness yeah but boy the minute i pulled out my cell phone said say that again he vanished. I mean, literally and truly, in the blink of an eye, we couldn't find him in the crowd. He gone. He was gone. <laughs> yep. They're out there, those anti-hunters, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the far side of things. But yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I imagine you've had to, you've seen a few of those here and there with all your traveling. Not as much. I hear a lot of people in the duck hunting community beat up on uh, Duck Dynasty, and man, you know, I think they did so much for hunting. I mean, you think about yeah. them. You think think about this. Just think about this. They put and made hunting acceptable in Manhattan. Yeah, on a mainstream level. On a mainstream level, they. And here's how far-reaching that brand was. I was in Pakistan duck hunting with a feudal lord, and it was an incredible duck hunt. And uh, we're sitting around a campfire talking. He had a lot of guests, prominent uh, who's who type guests, come in to meet us American hunters, and I was pouring a drink, and one of the men said, uh, you're from Mississippi, that's, that's near Louisiana. I go, yes, sir, and he goes, do you know Duck Commander? <laughs> and, and before I could answer, somebody else heard Duck Commander. Another Pakistani stepped in and said, oh, Duck Commander. They all got this little Alibaba uh, English accent, you know. Yeah. And, and I stood there, and without saying a word, I sat there and listened to 10 men tell Uncle side jokes in Pakistan. <laughs> Can you that's believe that? It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. That's hilarious. Not only did they put make hunting acceptable in Manhattan, Pakistan. I'm yeah. in Pakistan. That's crazy. To Uncle Si stories. Yeah. Yeah, I have no I have nothing negative to say about Duck Dynasty. I mean no. those guys, they do they, they they're in it for the right reasons from what I can tell. Heck and like yeah. and for all the reasons that you just listed off. Yeah. <laughs> Pakistan. <laughs> That's pretty great. So, where do you? I mean, I know you're talking like, you, you, what's the re, what's your schedule look like? I mean, you you've got Man. a pretty busy one lined up for the rest of this. I, fall, I don't have right? it inked in in place past about, um, but I can lay it out. Man, I'm I am back in the saddle, and it happened before I knew it. And um, just got back from South Africa night before last. I leave Saturday for Peru. And that, that's that's kind of scary. I'm gonna take Jake Latonders down there. We're gonna film it. But you know, it may not be a may not be a promotional piece. It's uh, I, I've just got this real profound feeling that it's going to be a posterity piece. And uh, mm. they just elected a communist government, and um, communists don't let citizens own guns. And the guy said he was gonna take gun. He, he was gonna ban guns from citizens. And uh, so we may be the last people to go in. We don't know. We're going to film it. 
and it, it's a really cool hunt. I've been there several times. Uh, you know, cinnamon teal, number one species I get a call and asked about are cinnamon teal. Uh, everybody wants one. They're beautiful birds. Never mind the fact they're uh, a shoveler's uh, downtrodden cousin. I mean, they, they, they really like rank marsh. I wouldn't eat one on a bet, but beautiful bird. And, but, you know, when you hunt those birds in Argentina and throughout the United States and everywhere you find them, I've really only seen them in little family cohorts, ones and twos and threes. But you get down to coast of Peru and you see flocks of 40 and 50 and 100. The greatest density of cinnamon till on earth. But then you get up in the mountains. Um, you shoot Andean geese and puna till and sharp wing till and used to shoot giant coot. Giant coot, just imagine shooting a four and a half pound coot. <laughs> and uh, it's just a cool, cool hunt, you know. And uh, But we're going to film it. We'll be back September 4th. I'll be home for a week. Till season starts on September 11th. Going to hunt Mississippi for a couple of days. Jump down to Venice. I, I wrote a story for Wildfowl Magazine years ago where I went from Mississippi to Venice, Louisiana, stayed south of I-10 and went all the way down to El Campo, which is kind of where all the Mississippi, most of the Mississippi and Central Flyway blue wings kind of thread the needle heading out to Mexico. Mm. And I chased the migration one year, and I'm kind of going to repeat that, but now that Canada's opened, I'm going to point my truck on about the 23rd or 24th whenever i get done uh recording podcast and some interviews i've got down there i'm gonna head straight to canada join some um nova scotia friends on a freelance snow goose hunt jump over to see a buddy uh uh in alberta and I, I'll, I'll spend about a 10 15 days in canada then i'm gonna swing down uh north dakota montana wyoming colorado it from here from there but if i get drawn for swans i need to be in north carolina before thanksgiving that's a long drive <laughs> after thanksgiving i will uh and we did this last year last year we did uh because the international borders were closed last year 100 150 days covered 22 states four flyaways my my dog char picked up 30 something species 30 species of waterfowl and we're gonna do something similar this year but this year i've got eight states that i have not hunted um, and I want to hunt them all, and most of them are on the Atlantic Flyway. So after Thanksgiving, first week of December, that time frame, I'm going to head to Michigan, meet some folks, Pennsylvania, and then it's going to be Maine, West Virginia, Connecticut, uh, no particular order, Virginia, all the way down to South Carolina, back home for Christmas. Somehow along the way, I've gotten drawn to, I've got a tag to shoot swans in Nevada. That's a, that's a life lift. I've never hunted Nevada and um north dakota got a swan tag hopefully north carolina you know there's 10 you know there's 10 states now you can shoot swans in yeah and i just kind of kind of the the covid bubble effect i want to shoot a swan everywhere i can now <laughs> i want to hunt every state i can now you know that, that's my bucket list yeah it is that new experience and along yeah. the way like you know uh so many of the interviews we do on duck season somewhere it's not about meeting with Name brand. I like to meet with just regular folks. Yeah. Go back and hunt their papaws back 40 and, and, and get a glimpse of duck hunting in their little corner of the world. Yeah. You know, hear their stories. That's what I like to hear. Oh, yeah. No, man, I, I'm 100% on board with that because, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, like, there's the, the, the hunting industry, quote, unquote, so to speak. There's a lot of folks in there that I'm great friends with and I care about dearly, but – um Sometimes I think when we say the the hunting industry that 
a big part of the hunting industry are the hunters. That's right. If there weren't any hunters, there wouldn't be no industry. So. That's right, man. I, I, <laughs> you you're, you're exactly right. And and not just some hunters, all hunters, yeah. man. I mean, we're all on equal footing. And, and I've just, long story short, uh, February will be Mexico and Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan's open. I've got a team. We're going over to Azerbaijan. And that is a, you want to talk about a cool experience man i mean you're literally baku we fly into a city called baku in the downtown baku now we're talking skyscrapers and ferrari shops a very wealthy oil country but then you go to the downtown it's like a 1200 year old fortress kind of a touristy area like for example uh, there's rug rug shops galore you ever been to a uh, persian rug store i mean it's just <laughs> a room twice this side with a hundred rolled up carpets and they keep throwing them out do you find one or, or yeah but you see a a, a flying carpet, uh, flying because you're 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 literally in the land of Alibaba, okay? And uh, we duck hunt eight miles from Iran on about a hundred thousand acre wetland, and we meet our guides at the boat ramp, and they've got these piro sized little raw wood boats that they caulk with mud that morning so they don't leak. <laughs> and you sit like this and don't lean too far, get balanced, and he push poles you for thirty or forty five minutes back into the marsh. And, man, without the motors and the lights, because they can see better without a light, you hear all the Eurasian widgeons and Eurasian green wings. You hear the ducks quacking all around you. They put out a few decoys. They call with your mouth. And, and it's just, it's like going back in time. That's an experience, collector. It's an experience. <laughs> that's, that, a, that's an experience. That's an experience. And, and you shoot. And the crazy thing is, I am 6,800 miles from home, eight miles from Iran, yeah. shooting uh, mallards are a big prize, pintails, shovelers, northern shovelers, our shovelers, you're raising green wings, you're raising widgeons, gadwalls, and then out of the blue comes a red crested poachers or a ferruginous poachers or a tufted duck. Just every now and again, you shoot something crazy like that. And yeah. it's just. I love it. I, I love it. And and but the hard thing in my world is going from there seven hours that way to two hours that way to Mexico. That that's where your body clock gets just all geofronted. Yeah, that's I, could, I but, haven't experienced that. Well, really, I mean, what, I've done a the New Zealand thing that one time. That's, that's the one a thing haul. I've dealt with that before. But you deal with that all the time. <laughs> but isn't that weird? Like New Zealand, you leave New Zealand. And you get home to Mississippi at the same exact time that you left yesterday. I mean, yeah. it's like if I leave on a Thursday at noon, I, I, I'm 24 hours in travel status, and I'm home on a Thursday at noon. That's that's just where'd that day go? It's it, weird. It threw off. That's <laughs> like uh, it was like on our. I can't remember how it worked out. I remember it was like on our trip back. I was talking to Ben, who went went with me, and I was like, technically, on this certain day. I didn't exist in the world because we left on <laughs> like I did. I wasn't there. I was. I skipped over the twenty second of March or it's like February. The twilight zone. Yeah, it's it's funky. And, and then I, going that way, I'm pointing way uh, east. Uh, that messes with my time. Going that way west doesn't mess with me. Hmm. It, it, that's that's weird too. I go to Africa and it takes uh, or Azerbaijan and it takes seven hours. In the future, it just takes a few days to get the body clock going. Yeah. You know, when I go to New Zealand or Australia, it doesn't mess me up too bad. But when I come home, it messed me up. Yeah. That's what it did. Same thing to me. Going there, I was I was pretty fine. When we came home, I was way off. I, oh, yeah. yeah. It was way, way, way thrown off. Yeah. That's cool, man. I think it's, it's a... 
it's obvious well let's do this before we close this out um where where can folks find you like where can that i mean again I've, I've alluded to it your instagram really for someone that appreciates wildlife or duck hunting to any degree you have an incredibly interesting instagram thank you it's uh at ramsey russell get ducks is our instagram account get ducks facebook which is nothing to look at it's just a feed of, of instagram that's really kind of where we hang out you know we do these these trips i love to document on that instagram story and uh i'll just keep it all going and and then make a daily post getducks.com is our website uh we got a small youtube channel where we put videos um and my telephone now right now now look folks uh, i get about 150 200 inbox a day on instagram uh if you really truly need to talk to me about something text me or call that that and my number's everywhere on on the internet Mm, yeah that's incredible, man. Well, look, thank you for your time today. And, and we got a podcast, Ducks Eating Somewhere. And I want yeah, to have you on there, Lake. I'd love to. I said, you, you really do. I mean, it's a the the hunting world, so to speak. It's so to 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 be able to stand to be in a a truly unique doing something unique this this day and age you're doing something and you re- i mean you really are i mean it, it, it's uh, you have something that's so different right now and that's that it's 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 like a breath of fresh air to watch your content you know because you don't there's no there's not any essence of like you were talking about there's no essence of greed or how no. many how many ducks can we kill it's it's just so for someone that has an appreciation for wildlife and waterfowl it's it's very very interesting hunt ducks not likes that's a that's a i, I borrowed that hashtag from uh one of our followers and she's got a pretty cool account herself and it's what it's about to me and i and I'll, you know one thing i'll say is uh 123 species worldwide into it or 123 subspecies worldwide into it six continents everything else there's so many differences between red crested poachers and bar-headed geese and pacific black ducks or whatever have you but what you learn is there's this universal language and commonality in duck hunting. There's a universal truth in duck hunting. And that's what that's what never ceases to amaze me is I can be with a Pakistani feudal lord or, or a professional hunter in Africa or a second-generation guide in Argentina or Mexico. Different languages, different practices, different techniques, different species. But there's a universal truth to it. I, mm. I, I can be an Azerbaijan, and let me tell you what, Google Translate, does, I can't communicate with Google Translate and him. I don't have to, though. We're both duck hunters. Mm. And we just make little subtle hand signals and get along, go enjoy it. And that, that's, that's something very satisfying in that. Of course. It's like a universal language. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And I think the same could be same about hunting in general. Yeah. But in my world, is duck. Sure. Yeah. You can find a commonality. You can find a way to communicate over a mutual love for a certain pursuit. Right. Or a mutual love for an animal. That's it. I like that. Thanks like for that. having me, Lake. Man, I've enjoyed it. Shoot, yeah. Thank you for coming on here, guys. Um, we're we're going to wrap uh, this conversation up. I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you have any questions for us, don't hesitate to send them in. You can send them into the Primos page or uh, my personal Instagram. Um, follow ramsey russell get duck get ducks um he alluded to where you can do all that at we'll probably when we post this we'll we'll tag you and, and find you. all it because i'm sure we'll have plenty of folks asking for it. this has been such a fun conversation and uh yeah we're gonna sign off guys thank y'all as always for listening to the speak the language podcast